Season 2 of Hard to Believe is a proud part of the Cage Club Podcast Network. You can find this and other great shows at cageclub.me. The complete Season 1 archive is also available at hardtobelieve.me. This show is now available on YouTube. Just search Hard to Believe Podcast. You can email me at john at cageclub.me. We're on Facebook at Hard to Believe Podcast. And you can follow me on Twitter at ProbablyRealJB. That's P-R-O-B-A-B-L-Y-R-E-A-L-J-B. The show is written and produced by me. Like many of my micro-generation, as a teenager, I loved Braveheart. It's not hard to understand why. That stunning John Toll cinematography, the stirring James Horner score, the battle scenes, the bagpipes, the freedom speech. It is, in many ways, the perfect historical epic. I say in many ways because the one way in which it definitely isn't perfect is the historical part. I don't mean to say that it's merely historically inaccurate. Lots of great movies are historically inaccurate and still contain some good history. Nitpicking over historical accuracy is a waste of time for a number of reasons. History itself, as we'll see today, is often not historically accurate. But Braveheart is different. My love affair with Braveheart crumbled to dust over the course of several years when I took to learning the history it purports to tell, and, well, there's a lot of problems. The kilts and the war paint stand out. Kilts wouldn't even be invented till centuries later, and the war paint is just a nonsense flourish by the filmmakers to retroactively equate the Scots to their picked ancestors. You can see my episode Beyond the Wall for more on this. But that's all superficial. More troubling is the timeline and historical implications. Princess Isabella was barely a toddler living in France when she supposedly had a love affair with William Wallace, who died when she was ten. Edward II was not an effete gay caricature, as the film implies. The chronology of the battles is all wrong, and perhaps, most infuriatingly, Wallace wasn't even the brave heart of the title. That name was given to Robert the Bruce, played wonderfully by the great Angus McFadden in one of the few remaining bright spots of the film. The real problem with Braveheart, that which pushes it from the realm of the absurd to the offensive, is the disclaimer that writer Randall Wallace puts into the mouth of Robert the Bruce in the film's opening voiceover. Historians from England will say that I'm a liar, he says, but history is written by those who would hang heroes. The nail in the coffin for Braveheart for me, to say nothing of how problematic Mel Gibson has proven to be in the years since, is this. An arrogant and obscene claim that Randall Wallace's lazy and grotesque distortion of history needs to be weighed against the apparent fact that the chroniclers of history are somehow complicit in the hanging of heroes. This is historical gaslighting. When I came across the podcast, Our Fake History, hosted and written by my guest, Sebastian Major, his episode on William Wallace was the first I listened to, and I came to realize Major had really hit on something interesting. Not just debunking the dumb things we believe about history, but using that debunking to illuminate why we believe those things and how analyzing those beliefs can actually help us form a better understanding of history. Quick side note, Major and I got into a long and exceedingly nerdy debate about the Shakespeare authorship question, on which we disagree. It was very fun, but I cut it in the interest of episode length. But we'll be taking up Shakespeare authorship in an upcoming episode, and I'll post our conversation on that topic as a bonus episode in the future. And with that, let's get to my talk with our fake history host, Sebastian Major. I'm John Brooks, and this is Hard to Believe.
Well, Sebastian Major, I, I suppose the only way I can really introduce you is to say, let me see if I can do this right. Hello, and welcome to Hard to Believe. How was that? Uh, pretty good, except the show's called Our Fake History. Oh, no, you're on my show. Ah, <laughs> uh, uh, oh, yeah, right. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Of course, yes, I believe. Well, dude, thank you uh, for uh, nailing the uh, the hello catchphrase. And then when we're done, you have to go, okay. I, I'm all. planning on it. That that one's going to be harder. <laughs> <That's>... <laughs> thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Uh, for the uninitiated, those who have uh, been living under a, a podcast rock, uh, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what your show is? all about i do a show called our fake history um it's a show about historical myths so those are stories and misconceptions that have gotten wrapped up in the historical record which may or may not be true what i do on my show is i tell those stories so i really kind of relish the uh the tall tale uh, and then i do a little historical detective work and as I say on the show, I try and figure out what's fact, what's fiction, and then what is such a good story that it simply must be told. Uh, so yeah, that's what I've been doing. I've been I've been creating that show since 2015. And when I don't do that, I'm a high school teacher here in Toronto. Why'd you pick this particular um, avenue of, of talking about history? Uh, because of course you could just sort of tell straight history. Um, mm -hmm. what, what is it like? So let, let me back up actually a little bit further from that. Um, sure. when, when did your love of history begin? Um, and then we'll talk about your love of fake history. <laughs> um, I, I, I was really into it from a, a quite a young age. Like the, as soon as they started offering history as a subject in school, it was my favorite subject. I was lucky that I had a lot of really inspiring teachers throughout my education. Uh, and it's part of the reason why I'm a teacher now. I, I've had so many teachers that just um, really affected me in a positive way over my life. And many of them were history teachers. Uh, and so that really got me excited about it when I was, you know, gosh, grade six, grade five, maybe earlier. I always loved stories. I remember, you know, reading Greek myths with my mom and dad when I was, when I was really little, like, mm -hmm. you know, six or seven and being all about it, just really, really into it right away. Um, then when I was in grade 12, <laughs> cut two, uh, I had this great grade 12 history teacher, uh, a guy named Atul Ball. And he really blew my mind with, um, you know, how history could be this skeleton key that unlocked the present. That if you really wanted to understand what was happening now, if you understood the past in a deep way, all of a sudden the present made a whole lot more sense. Mm -hmm. And I just loved his course and uh, it influenced what I took in university. I ended up getting my master's in something called public history. Um, and, uh, and when I went into education, uh, I really took with me that, that passion for, uh, you know, getting kids excited about these stories from the past as a way to sort of unlock what, what our present is. So then why, 
<laughs> why the fake stuff, right? So why is sort of the, um, you know, like what you do is kind of um, what, what I call for my students unlearning. Um, sure. One of the things that I often do with them, because I teach religion, and so of course there's a lot of stuff to unlearn. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I do with them pretty often is, um, you know, at the beginning of a, uh, a section, I will, I will figure out what they think they know yeah. and allow them to answer questions and get them wrong um, so that I can, I can better fill in those blanks, right? Um, which I find to be a really effective method. But um, what, what draws you to like really sort of embrace uh, that one particular sort of facet of, or, or um, angle of teaching history? Yeah, sure. Um, well, first of all, I'm also teaching religion right now. In Ontario, we offer a course called uh, Grade 11 World Religions. And uh, right now, that is my favorite course to teach. I just have the greatest group of kids in there right now. They're like super into it. Uh, so, uh, you know, again, we've got something else in common there. <laughs> um but uh, why the historical myths? Well, at first, it was just a an interesting angle on the history podcasting form. Uh, I listened to a ton of shows before I started mine. And um, I thought if I was going to take a swing at podcasting, I wanted to do something, at least within the genre of history podcasting, that no one else that I knew of was doing. Uh, <laughs> turns out right around the same time, like someone else launched a show that like also dealt with historical myths. I got to know him. I don't know if you've ever heard of uh, Professor Buzzkill. Um, <laughs> I haven't. Yeah, <laughs> That's he, a great name. He's another history podcaster that launched his podcast almost exactly when I launched mine. Uh, and he also looks at historical myths uh, and we very quickly became aware of each other and we've since, uh, you know, talked and, uh, got, you know, I've gained a lot of respect for one another. But at first it was like, oh, my God, I can't believe this other guy got the same idea <laughs> right when I did. Uh, but uh, I got the idea for the show from one of my students. So I was uh, teaching a history class and we were talking about uh, World War One. But specifically, we were talking about Russia in World War I. And I was like, oh, I'm going to tell them the story of Rasputin. And to really sort of jazz up the class, I'm like, I'm going to tell you the tale of Rasputin's death. And it's a great story, right? I mean, yeah. Yeah. really quickly, uh, you know, the tale is that, you know, some aristocrats bring him over to this mansion in St. Petersburg. They feed him poison and then he doesn't die. And they're like, oh my God, been, we've been giving him poison wine. We've been giving him poison pastries. This guy's just mowing him down and getting drunk and he's not dying. And so then they go, okay, enough. Let's just shoot him. They go downstairs. They shoot Rasputin. He falls down, but then they're still not feeling good about it about an hour later. And so they go and check on him. And sure enough, he like comes back to life like a zombie and like chases them around. They then come after him. They chase him out of the mansion. They shoot him. They shoot him. They shoot him. Eventually, he falls down. They think he's dead. They wrap him in a carpet uh, in, or in a rug, and they take him to the nearest river and toss him in the river. And then the story goes that in the morning, he was found out of the rug, and it looked his body was completely frozen, and it looked like he was in a posture like he had been clawing at the ice. Uh, and so... <laughs> 
the again the story goes that the coroner's ultimately declared that he had died from exposure and not from the poison and not from the gunshot wounds. Now I'm just telling this tale and I told it, you know, I told the long version of it in class. That's like the short version. And one of my students puts up his hand and goes, wait, I don't think any of that actually happened. (laughs) 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 And and I'm like, well, I know it seems pretty unbelievable, right? Like, I know you're, and he's like, well, no, he, and he had actually heard something else. He's like, no, I, I, I've heard that that's a myth. And actually I heard that, you know, he had heard a completely different story. And he's like, why are you teaching us lies in this class? And I, you know, was like, well, I, I know, you know, it is a kind of an unbelievable tale. And I was telling you, you know, really just to, to tell a great story and hopefully, hopefully get you hooked on, you know, the rest of, you know, Russia's impact on the first world war, which is like today's lesson. Um, but that night it stuck with me and I was like, you know, God, I, I need to learn more about this. So I went and did some research and what I learned is that we were both kind of right in that the story I had told came from one particular Russian aristocrat who, uh, his name's Yusupov, um, who is sort of the main source on the death of Rasputin. But, you know, you dig a little deeper and you realize that this guy is an unreliable narrator. There's all sorts of reasons to not believe his version of the story. And there's a bunch of inaccuracies and the coroners did not declare that he had died from exposure. That's totally just a a little, you know, fun little twist that was added later on. And so the next day I went back to the class with everything that I had learned and I actually had turned it into a lesson. Um, And I was like, okay, here's the source for this story. You know, here's the source for the other story. Here are some reasons why we potentially can't believe the people that uh, that we're supposed to believe in this case. What do you think we should do with this? How do we get to the truth? And, you know, I got the kids to analyze some primary source documents and we had an amazing discussion and one of the best history classes I had taught in a long time. And I'd been toying with the idea of doing a history podcast for a little while and I went home and I told my wife, I'm like, this, this is the show. This is it. This is the hook. The hook is the wild story. You get to tell the story, but then you, you explore the truth of it. And that process is really fun and really interesting. And, and you can learn a lot from it. So that's how I kind of got on to that, um, that idea. One of the things that I really like about your show, um, over the year and a half or so that I started listening to it is you don't really dismiss the fake history, which I think it's great because, um, you know, you, you don't sort of take this, this posture of here's this dumb thing that we all believe and here's what really happened. And like, make sure you only ever tell the real story. Um, that there's this sort of value to uh, the fake stories as well. And in some senses, like they are their own sort of separate history, right? It's like two, like mm-hmm. these two different lanes. Uh, one where you have the history of kind of propaganda <laughs> and then you have the history of the, of yeah. the actual events. Right. Um, what do you think is the value of, uh, of those, of those fake stories? Like how, how, 
how do you teach them um, and also teach them as like two different, like separate things? Great question. Great question. Because it is the tightrope walk that is the show. And I, I don't want to jettison those stories. I, and I think you kind of put your finger on that already because I love them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love a good tale. Uh, and it's part of what got me interested in history. And I think it's part of what gets everyone interested in history when they first fall in love with it is when they realize like, oh, these are all uh, just a bunch of stories that really happened. And then the added twist is, yeah, but some of them didn't happen. So <laughs> right. what... What I, what I like to sort of do is go in with the assumption that any sort of narrative about the past, any narrative, is going to be a construction of, in some way, shape, or form. Mm -hmm. Anytime we tell a story about the past, we are creating an imperfect recreation of reality, <laughs> right? Uh, and so, mm -hmm. you know, if you start there, I think it, it becomes easier to go, okay, now one of these recreations of reality is grounded in evidence we can trust. And another version is clearly, but was clearly made up a lot later. It was not based on any solid evidence. It was cooked up for various political purposes or, um, or sometimes just for the sake of a good tale. Uh, and so, but, but the creation of those stories can also tell us about the cultures that created them. They can tell us about the very specific people that dreamt them up. Um, and they can tell us about ourselves who want to believe them. Yeah. And in that way, I think it, it, it sort of functions as a form of myth because it, it preserves in these sort of outlandish stories, um, you know, deeper underlying truths of the history that otherwise uh, might get lost. So like, you know, for instance, without the Rasputin mm -hmm. story, um, you would miss, you know, you have to sort of investigate it further for sure, but you would miss a lot of the underlying sort of political and, um, um, you know, psychological tensions that are going on uh, surrounding Rasputin um, at the time that he was actually you know, alive and, and yeah, working. Yeah. And people kind of wanted to believe that he was supernatural, right? Like, why does that story have legs? Cause people want to believe he <laughs> was a wizard, yeah. you know? Yeah. And actually, you know, so, so, um, at the time of recording this, um, you, you are, uh, doing your Elizabeth Bathory, um, series and mm -hmm. you know that to me like i was almost when i when i first listened to it i was a little hesitant because i'm like oh i really don't want to let go of this story um and i know i know it's bs and i know that you know the the claims of of vampirism are you know elevated <laughs> to say the least um yeah. you know but I, I i also was like i i'm gonna i'm gonna give into it um but it's one of those things where it's like I, for some reason, like I want to believe there was this woman who, you know, fed on the blood of of, of virgins and, and you know in order to keep herself young and everything else. Um, 
I don't know why I want to believe that, <laughs> but but I I do like yeah. it, the feeling of um, those those sort of fantastic stories being being found um, not just in history but in the historical timeline, right? That you could go back in time and like watch mm-hmm. this happening um, is really appealing, even though I think we all sort of subconsciously know like that can't be right. <laughs> that, that there's got to be something, you know, something screwy is going on here that that can't have been. Yeah, and yet like the truth can sometimes be stranger than fiction. And one of the things that I've had to check myself on a number of times while making the show is you'll come across a story that you're like, oh, well, that's so outlandish. There's no way that could possibly be true. And you kind of got to stop yourself because you're like, well, just because something's wild doesn't necessarily mean that it didn't happen. Because, you know, human experience is just that wild sometimes. Uh, And so then it just all goes to like, where did this story come from? When did it get started? Who was saying this? Uh, Did they have any reason to say this beyond just the straight, you know, reporting of the facts? Uh, And then, and then you can, you know, perhaps instead of just setting it aside, just because it sounds impossible, uh, you know, really investigate it. Like, don't, I I have to remind myself not to start from the place of, because this sounds crazy, it's gotta be untrue. Yeah. I mean, being overly skeptical can be um, as bad as being uh, overly uh, gullible at uh, at times when you're studying history. Mm -hmm. I wonder if there's in, in sort of your, um, the couple of years that you've been doing this, if you've come across any sort of patterns or clues as to, when you're like, oh, this has all of the DNA of a fake story. Like yeah. one of the things that, the reason I, I'm thinking of that again is is uh, in the Bathory episode, you're talking about, you know, you got to be skeptical of whenever it's a woman in power and men desire to have that power and and crazy stories yeah. are told about that person. Like that is usually a, a tell uh, that the story is probably not um, as, as, as it appears. Are there other... Um, sort of yeah. Cliff's Notes versions of like, <laughs> you know, when you see this, uh, you know, the the uh, the alarm bells go off. Yeah, yeah. The, <laughs> you you I you you pointed out that yeah in the in the Bathory episode, I think I I said she fell into the deranged sex wick trope, <laughs> yes. uh, which is which is just a classic um, slander used against powerful women throughout uh-huh. history. Um, and as you're going to see in the second part of the Bathory show, like she's a particularly complicated case because uh, that's one where the the primary sources are uh, kind of torn on her. Uh, where you know some folks say that she you know really did commit some pretty terrible murders, but there's other uh, researchers that believe that those people were either tortured into saying those things, or uh, were pressured into saying those things, or were uh, all of them were just reporting hearsay. Uh, so it gets really complicated in that particular case. Um, so the number one go-to is the later a story appears in the historical record from when it was supposed to have happened, mm-hmm. the higher likelihood that it is fake history. So if like, let's say, you know, again, we'll, we'll use Bathory. Um, the Bloods of Bath, or the Baths of Blood, sorry, the Baths of Blood. 
<laughs> no one mentions her taking a bath in blood until 100, over 100 years after she died, right? And there's a lot of stuff said about her during her lifetime that we have recorded, and some of it is terrible. But the number one myth about Elizabeth Bathory is that she liked to bathe in the blood of young women to restore her health and beauty. Mm -hmm. And it's not until at least 100 years after she dies that we see that pop up in a source. That is the number one tip off that it's probably fake history. Back in my very first episode, now like a hundred and <laughs> over 120 episodes ago, yeah. um, I looked at uh, an old historical myth that uh, Queen Elizabeth I of England uh, was secretly a man in drag, that a little boy had been substituted for her at one point because she died while in the countryside under the protection of some courtiers, and then they had to keep the charade up for her entire life. Well, again, one of the clearest ways we know that that is not true, and there's a lot of ways, but one of the clearest ways we know it's not true is because no one mentions it until really the 1800s. So like, again, like a solid 300 years uh, or maybe a bit less, call me a liar, and it's 250 years <laughs> uh, after she dies before someone goes, you know, she was secretly a man. Um, and again, that's just a huge tip off. And I've seen that one come up again and again and again. The other way that you kind of know it might be historical myth is if it follows the structure of a fairy tale or right. <laughs> a, another sort of classic uh, storytelling trope a little too well. Um, and so, uh, you know, one thing that I was, you know, seeing in the martial arts episodes is that, you know, the story of the Buddha comes up a lot. And, uh, and so, you know, if something is sort of following one of those like well-known tropes just a little too closely, that warrants uh, extra extra examination. Mm -hmm. Or even if a character type comes up. And one thing you see, especially in the uh, Roman history, so the ancient uh, Roman historians, they were really invested in the evil stepmother trope. Um, and so anytime they're talking about a uh, – a, especially an, an older, more powerful woman, um, you kind of have to read that very carefully because there's always a chance they're just going to be like, she was an evil old crone who was jealous of her husband's original children. And so, you know, that's why she murdered everyone. Um, <laughs> and so, again, you, you, once once you sort of know those storytelling structures uh, or you're sort of got your your radar up for those sort of uh, common character types that especially older historians really love or even if they're not historians, just people writing uh, historically themed stuff, um, you just always got to investigate those a little closer. It's funny you say that because, you know, I, I also think of the other side of that and and one of the examples i sometimes use with my students when i'm talking about um distinguishing between you know myth 
and uh, just a completely made up random story, right? Um, mm. the, the idea of, of myth being something that contains uh, a, a, a deeper meaning beyond just the textual uh, level. Um, one of the examples I use for them pretty often is Martin Luther King. I, I, I'm like, I could tell you a story of Martin Luther King that would sound very much like a myth. And, and, I, and I, could, I could build it around, and he did it himself, right? When talking about himself, he sort of put it in this, you know, sort of mosaic uh, exodus, right, structure. Yeah. And, and so I say to them that, you know, I could tell you a story that is a myth of Martin Luther King and everything in it would be true. Everything in it would have happened, right? Mm. Um, and so it, it's sort of the thing... The thing I'm sort of worry about sometimes is because sometimes the way these stories are told is um, is sort of caked in this structure uh, that we then write it off right as being as being made up because uh, it's told within this this archetypal framework. I, I don't know if you can think of any like any deeper historical examples beyond someone like MLK. But but that sort of springs to mind as something where I'm like, well, yeah, but, right? Yeah, like people that we have uh, constructed a narrative about and the, uh, and the narrative itself has become so powerful that, you know, the, the actual details of their life become almost secondary to the, the grand story. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, or, or if, and if like we, 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 <laughs> We put them within that grand story. It almost makes a future generation maybe think to themselves, "Well, maybe this person didn't even really exist." Yeah. Well, actually, you know what? Which one really comes to mind when you say that is Joan of Arc. Exactly. Yeah, Joan of Arc's story like should not be true, right? And yet, it's like mostly true. It, that one like kind of blew my mind when I when I got into it. Because, you know, there are individual moments like miracles performed um, along her journey that, you know, probably did not happen. Um, the whole Delphine thing was probably staged, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 And like, you know, she prays to God and the the, the wind reverses and the flow of the river reverses. <laughs> uh, she heals the dead at one point. Like, you know, there's, there's stories like that about Joan of Arc. But the broad strokes of like, a teenage girl in medieval France, a peasant teenage girl in medieval France, like just through force of will actually leads an army and, and, and helps, uh, helps the Dauphin become the King of France. Mm -hmm. Like that, that part of it is true or is as best as we know, all the best sources seem to agree that that happened. And that's the kind of thing that, again, if you were just to go like, if someone was just to tell you that and you had no you know, context for history, you would go, no. <laughs> right, right. No yeah. way, no way that happened. That's gotta be a, just a completely made up. And yet it happened. Um, man, that one blows my mind every time I talk about it, to be honest. I got to say, I remember that as being the episode where I was like, oh, I'm least disappointed in this, in the reality of this story as you tell it, because I'm like, I, I had to sacrifice very little um, of, of the reality of the story, uh, you know, after your, after your dissection. And I think this is why everyone is still sort of fascinated with her is because we also have all the, uh, 
the records of her uh, depositions at the hands of the the Inquisition, all of her testimony, and it's so it's it's so clever and smart and funny at times and she's just like avoiding the traps of the inquisitors like so perfectly and you were like maybe she was just a genius i i don't know i mean there's a lot of people that think that maybe she was dealing with some form of mental illness but that doesn't come across in the records from the inquisition so I am still just boggled by Joan of Arc and her entire story. I wonder if you uh, – so I, I know in the last year or so, uh, you, you've talked on the show about uh, wanting to expand your horizons uh, in terms mm-hmm. of the history that you talk about. And you've done some really interesting things with uh, you know, the martial arts episodes and um, all that sort of thing. Um, beyond that, in a bigger picture um, – what have you been kind of surprised? What has the, the, the podcast itself and doing the podcast like taught you that you didn't know before? And I don't mean in like specific, you know, revelations about Joan of Arc or whatever. Um, yeah. but, but how has it sort of enriched your understanding of history? Uh, well, I think I have a better understanding of how I now know something is true or not, or something mm. is to be believed or is not to be believed. Um, when I started the show, it was 2015. And I took the name Our Fake History about a year before the term fake news became <laughs> the catchphrase that it became, right? I hadn't even thought of that. Yeah. yeah. And so what started as kind of a lark of like, oh, let's just have some fun with these stories and teach people history. All of a sudden felt like more of a mission when, when there was so much misinformation being put out into our world and it felt, it felt like people didn't know how to properly sort what was true from what, was not true. And I think before all of that, I think I was a bit more of a relativist in that I was like, as I kind of mentioned before, like, hey, reality is crazy, man. We all put it together in the way we best way we can. But when you when when I when you see um, you know, especially my students, you know, asking me questions about whether or not the earth was round, <laughs> I was like, Oh man. Okay. We, this is now a bit more of a mission because what I'm doing in the show is I'm hopefully, I think in a good show, I'm demonstrating how you evaluate a, uh, a story, how you evaluate a, um, uh, a proposition, right. And how at the end of it, you can come away going, ah, there are some things about that that were true and there were some things about that that were not true. And there's, there's, there is such a thing as evidence and this is what evidence in this context looks like. And things that are supported by evidence are things that are more accurate <laughs> and are things that can be more rightly said mm-hmm. to be true. And I didn't know that that was going to be something that people needed to hear. Um, but I think it is something that people need to hear. Now, I think most people that listen to my show don't really need to hear it. 
I think most people that listen to my show are already like, you know, real curious kind of history nerds for the most part. They're people like me, I think. Um, and and so I, I think that most of my listeners don't need that message shoved down their throat. But I do feel like it's a good thing to put out into the world. Um, and I didn't feel passionate about that when I started the show. And now I do feel passionate about that. Yeah, I mean, and certainly that has become increasingly relevant <laughs> for for unfortunate reasons. And, and yeah. you know, I, I, the, the whole fake news phenomenon, of course, being being one of them. Uh, which so actually, that's that's an interesting. Um, it's a transition that I want to make sure. here because uh, I, I recently talked to um, Daniel Clark, who who directed um, the documentary uh, Behind the Curve about flat earthers, sure. uh, and. And, uh, you know, I, I, I was thinking about, after we talked, I was thinking about your, um, I think it did a three-part episode about faking the moon landing, mm-hmm. uh, which is something that, that he and I um, brought up as mm-hmm. well. And I wonder what your thought is on the distinction between um, fake history and conspiracy theories, and if they are just the same word or a different word for the same thing. Um, or if that's a different realm, uh, because it's not something that you, like you haven't done a JFK assassination episode, right? right? Um, why, why did you feel the need to do the moon landing one? Um, and, and are you kind of hesitant to, to enter into the conspiracy theory area or, or is that just something that you think, um, you can sort of weave into bigger, uh, bigger analyses of historical events. Yeah. Um, well, I think you kind of sensed correctly that I am uh, hesitant to get into what I call modern conspiracy stuff. Um, uh, there's a ton mm-hmm. of podcasts out there that deal with modern conspiracy <laughs> theory stuff. Some, you know, actively spreading them and others do kind of doing what I do, playing with them, having fun with them, you know, cracking a beer and being like, you heard about this one? You know, that's a lot of, <laughs> right. That's a lot of podcasts that are out there. Um, and more power to those guys. I, I, you know, do, do what you do. Uh, but I feel like they're really well covered and they don't interest me as much as, um, as like actual examinations of the his uh, of, of our history. Now, the JFK assassination is certainly a part of our history. How could it not be? And I guess I could get into that one of these days, but it's just, I just feel like it's almost outside of my genre. Uh, if that makes sense. Uh, I feel like, you know, I, I need another, you know, 20 or 30 years to pass before I can, you know, really <laughs> talk thoughtfully about, uh, about the John F. Kennedy assassination. Um, the reason I did the moon landings were for a number of reasons. One, uh, it was the anniversary of the, uh, the 50th anniversary of, of the first moon landing. Uh, two, I absolutely love the topic. I absolutely love the history of NASA. I love the history of the space race. Uh, I am fascinated by it. It's actually something that I've loved since I was a kid. So there's a real personal interest there. And then also I had the opportunity to speak to someone 
who had uh, worked on the Apollo missions. So, I mean, when you get that opportunity, you're like, okay, I've just got to, I got to go for it. And the timing is perfect. Um, and, uh, and he was actually an Australian guy who had worked at one of the satellite stations that had tracked the Apollo craft um, to the moon. And, uh, and it's just like great. It was great to have him on the show. And I, I almost didn't want to like insult him by bringing up, you know, moon landing conspiracies. Uh, Cause you know, he's an old man who devoted his life to, you know, face <laughs> and, yeah. you know, he's come on my podcast, you know, out of his good graces. And I'm going to be like, did you fake it? <laughs> um, you know, uh, more, more importantly, more importantly, um, you know, we had a really excellent conversation about, you know, what he did, what his station did, how you actually, you know, track spacecraft in space in the 1960s and early 70s. Um, and I, at the end, I was like, you know, with all due respect, you know, what what do you say to people who think that you faked this? And he, he was like, well, how do you explain all of us? Right. And, and what he meant by that were all the people that worked on the Apollo missions. And these are not just Americans, the tens of thousands of Americans, but also the thousands of Australians. And then he named all these people that worked in Spain on this. This was a worldwide effort to put people on the moon. As much as it truly was one of America's greatest achievements, um, it, was a, it was a global effort that involved most of America's allies uh, as well. And, and this Australian guy is like, you know, if, if there was a conspiracy, this is a conspiracy that involved, you know, a lot more Australians than you think. (laughs) (laughs) And I, I just found that perspective refreshing and important. And, you know, it's my job on the show to be like, okay, now I'll talk about, you know, the, the Van Allen radiation belts and why people think that that makes, you know, travel to the moon impossible. And let's get into the, the nitty gritty of that. But, you know, getting, getting that sort of first person experience, I just couldn't turn that up. So that's why I looked at that particular topic. Um, but I don't really want to get into like, I'll never do a show on, you know, 9-11 and I'll never do a show like JF, the JFK assassination. It'll be a very long time if, if ever, if I ever get into that. And like, ugh, I don't even really want to do a show on like the Illuminati because uh, <laughs> I'm not really, because I'm not really interested in it. And it's like, it, and there's the other part of me that's like, there's just so much out there on it right now uh, that I just don't want to be part of that chorus in a way. Yeah, that's understandable. I I just think it's really it's it's so interesting that there's this thin line uh, between, and I think it has to do with like fake history is just a conspiracy theory that everybody believes and that you learn about in grade school, right? <laughs> with usually like slightly less impact, right? So you know the the story about the first Thanksgiving that that we all learn about in the states, um, mm-hmm. especially in the Northeast here. You know, I was 
taught that in second and third grade as though it was just fact, um, yeah. which sounds, which seems crazy to me now, obviously. But yeah, yeah you know, yeah. certainly, like if I believe that the first Thanksgiving happened, it doesn't necessarily distort the rest of my reality. But you know, the interesting thing about the moon landing one and and the flat Earth one that these sort of really absurd, like the kind of coordination that you would need, right, in order to present yeah. the idea that the Earth was flat and also that the uh, moon landing was faked, if you can then believe that, uh, the rest of the conspiracy theories kind of fall into place, right? It's so much easier right. than to believe that the Illuminati controls everything and, um, right. and, and so on and so forth. And with so many conspiracy theories, they also so very quickly devolve into sort of straight up anti-Semitism. Of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we, we've talked about that on my show. We're, we're doing actually a, a series about uh, Russian disinformation this, this mm. season. And, and yeah, it, it's always anti-Semitism. Like, it's every single time, that's what it yeah, comes down it, to. Um, yeah, it's it, stunning. You pick at it at all, and then very quickly it's like, ooh, you know, it's all Jewish people. It's like, oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. Not or some exactly. proxy sort of dog whistle version of it, right? The globalists right. or the or Global. the Illuminati, right? And it's 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 yeah. always just a secret way of saying it's the Jews. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, I know it's true. Uh, so you pick at this stuff long enough, and you're like, oh my goodness. But one thing I actually find more interesting is going back and like looking at things like the Crusades and uh, the Black Death in Europe, uh, and all of these times of you know. Uh, crisis essentially and again you find people at those times cooking up anti-jewish conspiracy theories essentially so i'm i am interested i guess in conspiracy theories in as much as i'm interested in them in the historical context and the deep the further back in time the better for me um because you know I, again you know in, during the black death that was the you see Jewish people getting scapegoated for that. During the, the fervor of the first crusade, you see those crusaders attacking Jews first. And in many cases, the people's crusade, the most people that they killed were European Jews. Um, why? Because of very similar, eerily similar conspiracy theories that were circulating amongst people that still get circulated now. Yeah, in fact, and when I, again, getting back to the, the Bathory episode, which just happens to be fresh in my mind, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, when, when you were talking about the, the bathing in blood thing, I thought immediately of the blood libel, and I was like, oh, wait oh, a yeah. second, right? And I, and, and I think of, like, the uh, the adrenochrome thing and, and you know, with QAnon, <laughs> and it's all the same. It's all the same. Uh right the slander is always the same thing and it just fascinates me how how sticky that is and and how it just sort mm -hmm. of changes shape over over time yeah well it's clearly something that's deep in our psychology right mm -hmm. it has uh you know deep metaphorical or archetypal is maybe the better word i'll get Jungian on you it has deep <laughs> It has deep archetypal meanings, like what it is to drink someone's blood and eat someone's flesh is so, it's also like a, a perversion of the Eucharist, right? And, and this yep. stuff is so baked in to our, our collective uh, stories 
that um, that in a way it's it's almost no surprise that it keeps coming up again and again. Well, yeah, and, and when Christianity was a secret society in in the Roman uh, the Roman Empire, um, they were accused of that very thing. They the, the rumors yeah. got around that they ate flesh and drank blood, and they were accused of vampirism. And it's like <laughs> it just is, you know. Yeah. It's always it's and of course they were sort of trolling in a way i guess because <laughs> it technically sort of was true uh as far as they were concerned but you know, um before yeah. we go i got a i got a few lightning round questions for you you ready for this sure all right less existent time period the dark ages or the renaissance <laughs> i'm gonna say the dark ages i'm gonna say the dark ages when at the end of the renaissance shows like i was kind of like yeah no the there clearly something was going on in, especially those Northern Italian cities in the 1400s. Uh, I think the bigger sin of those guys that pumped up the Renaissance was by kind of creating the dark ages or making the dark ages darker than they were. So I'm going to say dark ages are more of an exaggeration than the Renaissance was an exaggeration. <laughs> All right. Next question. Uh, most problematically, historically inaccurate movie, not called Braveheart. Uh, I mean, the one that always comes to mind is gladiator oh. uh, and gladiator does not claim to be real history. Right. <laughs> That's true. But, but I think, but I think people think that it is, huh? You know what I mean? Yeah, um, no, I do. Cause it, that, well, it uses historical figures. So yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so, you know, people are like, yeah, there was that one Roman emperor who, you know, died in the arena while fighting a gladiator. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, and, and to, you know, not to, you know, uh, put, put Ridley Scott on blast here. Uh, but, you know, obviously it never presented itself as a real uh, historical uh, depiction, but, it's historically themed. It's historically set. Uh, that's the one that pops to mind immediately. Hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm sure if I thought about it for a little more, I'd be like, oh, yeah, of course, that one. How did I forget that one? But uh, Well, Ridley Scott is good at, at, at you know, um, taking history and sort of fudging it. <laughs> I mean, like yeah. Kingdom of Heaven being a, a good example of that. But yeah. um, um, the other, you know, the other big one that pops to mind is is uh, Apocalyptico or Apocalypto. Oh, yeah, but it's that's all it's all Mel Gibson then. It's it, you know that's oh yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Mel Gibson. Yeah, but again, that's just like not at all. Like it conflates time periods. It conflates um, you know moments in history. It's uh, it, on in some respects is very accurate in some details, and in other respects just completely all over the shop. And so like, if you, yeah, if you watched that, you would think that like Mayan civilization was in, was like fully flourishing uh, when the first Europeans turned up and that's not true. Yeah. That actually just one more thing on the gladiator part of it is mm -hmm. that that time period and especially Roman emperors in general are, are already enormous victims of fake history that it's sort of like, yeah, eh. I'll give I'll give Ridley Ridley that mulligan. Uh, all right, uh, two more <laughs> bigger source of fake history: the Third Reich or the Crusades? Ooh, ooh, good question. Um, my, it kind of depends when you were living. <laughs> yeah. I feel like right now it's got to be the Third Reich because of all the uh, airtime they get, especially on the History Channel. 
You mean the Hitler channel? Hitler and exactly. alien channel? Yeah. Hitler and alien channel. Uh, yeah, yeah. And like like Third Reich stuff also, you know, also gets into like uh, occult stuff really quick. Um, you know, there's the the Spear of Destiny stuff. Yeah, which appears um, in both, right, in the Third Reich and that's the United right. That's That is correct. Oh, my God. I didn't even realize that I made that connection. Thank you for pointing that out. Uh <laughs> Yeah, uh, you know, like, and then all the stuff like Hitler escaped or seek, there's secret uh, uh, bunkers in Antarctica where Nazis are hiding out or cloning programs or I feel like, I feel like it, the Third Reich stuff almost feels like modern science fiction <laughs> in some ways. Uh, the Crusades did create a ton of fake history. But I feel like a lot of the fake history that was probably believed by people in the medieval period or me believed by people in uh, early modern period or right up until the 19th century, most people don't really believe now, right? All the stories about like kind of wild miracles occur occurring on the battlefield or the whole thing about, the, again, the spear of destiny, the, 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 the discovery of the that spear, um, you know... Uh, even, you know, the, the sort of grand narratives about why the crusade happened and how it happened. Um, I feel like you, you have to kind of be a history buff already to kind of to know that stuff. Uh, whereas uh, I think everyone's absorbed a few uh, Third Reich myths. Fair enough. All right. Last one. Uh, worst purveyor of fake history, Washington Irving or Eric Von Daniken? <laughs> Good one. Oh, these are great. Uh, <laughs> I feel like, okay, Von Daniken. Oh, God, what a stinker. <laughs> I feel, if you, when you actually read Von Daniken, have you ever read any of his books? I have. Yeah. 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 When you read them, you're like, I can't believe anyone believed this for a second. Because they're so like kind of haphazard, like no evidence really given, especially in the first one, especially in uh, Chariots of the Gods, question mark? How do you say that? <laughs> do, do you say it? Chariots of the Gods? So I, I just can't believe that anyone, I mean, I think people just liked the romance of the idea. It's a fun idea. Uh, but when you read the books, you're like, oh, this guy doesn't give an ounce of evidence. He's just like, hey, these statues are interesting. Moving on. Um, and uh, so I feel like the ancient aliens, uh, ancient astronauts, whatever you want to call it, uh, theory, while it has its proponents, most people see it as just a bit of good fun. Whereas the Washington Irving stuff, a lot of that got like embraced by the historical record and really gets repeated as fact. Um, so while Ancient Aliens has you know way more people attracted to it than I think is necessarily healthy, I think most of them are there because they think it's a, a fun idea to entertain. Um, and whereas the Washington, the stuff that's gotten into the historical record because of Washington Irving is believed as fact. So in that case, I think he's worse. Good answer. Um, okay. Uh, how was that? Is that good? Nailed it. Nailed Before we it. go, you want to sell your wares? <laughs> sure. It was really nice getting to know you. Really nice talking to you. And yeah, you uh, this was lovely. Um, 
Uh, if people want to hear more, they can find uh, Our Fake History wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, you can go to ourfakehistory.com uh, where you can listen to the whole back catalog there. I got it all organized. You can see all the great art that's created for the shows by my uh, my friend and artist, my buddy Frank, creates all the episode art. You can see it all on the website. Um yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Our Fake History. You can follow me on Instagram at Our Fake History. Uh, you can follow me on Facebook at, you know, facebook.com slash Our Fake History. So uh, there it is. I'm pretty easy to find. Just put in Our Fake History and you'll, you'll find me. Sebastian Major, thanks so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. It's like-